Father, we um, offer ourselves to you today. It's actually really the only thing that we have to offer, so that's what we offer. And where there is this temple inside of us and where that is, there is a throne and where there are other, th other things or people or, or sitting in it, Lord, we just kind of give them the stanky boot and invite you here into our center. And uh, that's, a, that's a varying journey for each of us, but um, where we just ask that you would uh, make, uh, that you'd put yourself more firmly in the center of who we are today. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are going to be in the book of Daniel, and we will be in Daniel chapter 3 today. Daniel chapter 3. My name, if we've not met, by the way, I'm Kyle. I get to be one of the pastors here and get to lead our teams and just glad to be with you. Daniel 3. There is this feeling of being a stranger. There's a feeling of being a stranger. There's a feeling of being on the outside. There's a feeling of being in the minority. And some of you might be feeling that way today. Church is a place that makes you feel a little... Ugh. It's okay. I work at one and I feel that way most of the time. There's a feeling of being a stranger. And we've all felt it at certain points in our life and uh, the word that the Bible uses to describe that feeling is the word exile. Exile, to be carried away. To be in exile is to be what sociologists call a cognitive minority. It means you have a pattern of thinking and a way of life that is at odds with the pattern and thinking and way of life of people around you. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, describes exile as the experience of knowing that you are an alien and even perhaps in a hostile environment where the, the dominant values, the dominant values are encounter to your own. That's exile. Now, some of you might be feeling that way this morning, and I want to assure you that you're not in a hostile environment. Um, but the contention that we've been unpacking as a spiritual family for the last couple weeks and what we've been reflecting on together is this idea that to follow Jesus means to take on the position of an exile, to be a minority, to be on the fringe. And this is confusing for some that have been following Jesus, especially if you've been following Jesus for a long time, because there was a moment, there was actually a significant moment, where your values as a follower of Jesus were pretty much identical to the values of our culture. And something happened in the last 30 years, something happened in the last 10 years in particular that have kind of reversed that. And it can be kind of um, head spinning. 
Um, some people get really mad. Some people uh, deconstruct. There's all sorts of ways of kind of engaging in that. There's this, this feeling of being in exile, and it is uncomfortable. It's ripe with opportunity, but it is uncomfortable. You don't have to be following Jesus for long. You might have only been following Jesus for a year or two, and, and every time you really start to sit with Jesus, you get this sense of just how different from the culture that you came out of just like a minute ago you're supposed to be. Jesus is calling you to be. It's that weight of, of being in exile, and it's hard, and it's confusing, and um, it's just not the way that it's supposed to be uh, in some ways is what we feel. But have you ever considered the fact that there are people who choose this? There are people who choose to become a minority, to choose to enter into a place that is hostile to their own values. There are people that enter into a self-imposed exile. Ours is not self-imposed. It feels like it happened to us. But there are some people that choose it, that self-imposed exile. You know what we call them? We call them missionaries. We call them missionaries. These are people who leave people that look like them, and people that talk like them, and people that call pop pop or soda soda or coke coke. They, they, they leave those people and they go to a people that do not know them and in many cases don't want them. They're, they're missionaries. How many of you know the story of Jim Elliott? Okay. The rest of you are showing your baby Christian status or the fact that you've been in a Methodist church for too long. Um, Jim Elliott, you could watch all of what I'm about to tell you in a movie called Through the, Gla- Through the Gates of Splendor. Through the Gates of Splendor. Jim Elliott was a Wheaton College graduate. He, here's how you know that I went to Wheaton, as I call it Wheaton. If you didn't go to Wheaton, you just call it Wheaton. But I went to Wheaton, as did... I told that joke better this time than last time, huh? Um, uh, Jim Elliott was a recent graduate of Wheaton College when he heard of the Alka Indians, uh, an indigenous tribe in Ecuador that had never heard the name of Jesus, had never heard of the gospel. And right away upon hearing of this people group, Jim felt stirred to go to them, right? Jim felt stirred. Has that ever happened to you? Not maybe a missionary call yet, um, but, but like you hear something and you just have this sense inside of you that the Lord is doing something with you about it, yeah? So he hears of this and immediately feels like he has to go. So in 1952, Jim and a friend moved to Quito, Ecuador. Jim marries his wife, Elizabeth, in 1953. They had a daughter in 1955. And in the fall of 1955, Jim, along with now four other missionary partners, they make contact with the Alka. And they do this by flying a plane low over where the Alka live and blasting on a loudspeaker attached to the plane like words that the Alka would know, trying to kind of create like, hey, we are friends, we're not here to harm you, these kinds of things. Uh, and after a few fly-by uh, contacts with the Alka, on January 3rd of 1957, the missionaries identify a sandbar that they could use as their base, a sandbar where they could land the plane and kind of operate as close to where the Alka live. They called it Palm Beach. And, um, and so uh, on, January si- on January 6th of 1957, uh, the five men made contact with one Alka man and two Alka women, And then two days later, on January 8th, 1957, Jim and his four friends were speared to death by the Alka. 
They barely even got there. They all had young wives and young children. And the world was scandalized. Life magazine did a 10-page article on these five men. This is actually the picture of it. And the title of the, of the 10-page article was, Go Ye and Preach the Gospel, Five Do and Die. They were utterly scandalized about this, and, and you might be too. How unfair. But what the world missed and what we miss in this story is something that Jim knew, Jim Elliott knew so clearly, so clearly he knew it that he wrote it in his journal six years before he died. You can see all his journals at Wheaton College, by the way. Uh, And at Wheaton College is the wardrobe that inspired C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, He wrote in his journal on October 28th, six years prior to his death, it's got the green asterisk next to it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Okay, think about that. That's an interesting sentence, right? He is no fool who he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, Jim entered a self-imposed exile, as did his friends. And they found exile to be the way of sacrifice. So did, by the way, their wives and children. Did you know their wives and children? after their husbands died, their fathers died, went back to that people group. They went back to that people group and preached the gospel to them, and spiritual revolution overtook the Alka tribe. I I saw Steve Saint, who is the pilot's son, and uh, some of the Alka tribe when I was in, like, early middle school at a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert, thus showing how long... I've been a Christian, 90, okay. Stephen Curtis Chapman had, when I was like in preschool, this song called Dancing with the Dinosaurs. It's actually a really good song. It's about how if you want to call me old-fashioned for believing the things I do, that's fine. I'll just go dancing with the dinosaurs. Now, I didn't understand that message. I just liked it because it had dinosaurs in it, yeah? <laughs> but Stephen Curtis Chapman um, did a tour with, this, with, this, with, with the with the Alka Indians, with Steve Saint. I got to hear them speak. It was really moving. Again, if you want to know more about this, watch Through the Gates of Splendor. Through the Gates of Splendor. Um, spiritual revolution overtook that tribe. But Jim walked the way of exile and found it to be the way of sacrifice. Now, other missionaries, in their self-imposed exile, not all missionaries die, but, but for every missionary... The way of exile is the way of sacrifice. And and that's what we've been kind of considering together over the last few weeks, right? The way of exile. Now, we've been taking the Shrek approach. What does Shrek say? Ogres are like onions. They have layers, right? So we're peeling back the layers of exile, right? The way of exile is the way of blessing. The way of exile is the way of holiness. Today, we're going to join Daniel and his friends to find that the way of exile is the way of sacrifice. So turn with me, if you will, to Daniel 3. Daniel, in chapter 2, interprets correctly one of the king's dreams, and he's appointed to a high position in the Babylonian government. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
made a gold statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Now listen, since we're talking about Christian memorabilia like Stephen Curtis Chapman and VeggieTales, anybody? It's a bunny, okay? It's a bunny in the VeggieTales. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he'd set up. He sets up the statue and he says, okay, I want every senator from every state, I want every congressman from every state, I want every governor, I want every lieutenant governor, I want every judge from every, he wants everybody in the government, he wants them there, why? So all these officials came and stood before the statue. Verse four, a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Verse seven, so at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he creates a statue, he creates an idol, he creates a god to bow, and, and, and calls everybody that's powerful in his government to, to, to bow down before it. Now, Babylonians are polytheists. They believe that there are many gods. They're syncretists. They like to combine all those gods into what we might call a blob religion. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And so they have no problem with this. I grew up in a house of four boys, and um, anytime we had friends over, you know, my friend's mom would be like, are you sure? And my mom always said, what's one more? What's two more? You know, we would have cast parties after drama club, have 50 people in our house. What's 50 more, right? This is, this, this is how the Babylonians feel about another God. What's one more? Sure, we'll worship that too. But there's a, so they have no problem with it, except there's a segment living within Babylon, a segment of this population a segment brought there under duress from Judah that would have a problem with this because the people of God, Israelites, are monotheists. Now, here's what it means to be a monotheist. It's not to believe that there is only one God and the rest are fake. It's to believe of all the gods that are real and worshipped in all sorts of places. There's only one that is worthy of worship. Israel has one watchword, and it's in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Now, Jesus comes and reveals that this one God is a Trinitarian God. <laughs> so we are monotheists who believe in one God who, is, who exists eternally as three persons. It's a mystery of the faith. But we are nonetheless monotheists, not tritheists. And for monotheists, this, this proposition is a problem. It's a problem for Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of get the focus of this passage. It's a problem for them because, as we already saw in Daniel 1, when the whole world around them was zagging, they zigged. Right? And so even here, in Daniel 3... They, they zig where others zag, even at great personal cost to themselves. And a lot of you missed me say this last week because we learned last week who has snow tires and who doesn't. But um, this is not America where Daniel is. There is no Bill of Rights. Daniel has no option to say, 
to file a religious exemption to not bow in front of the idol. Okay? This is, this is a world where the king is essentially God and you do what the king says, right? And so there is no appeal process by which Daniel has any other choice or his friends have any other choice. This is what the choice they make in verses 16 through 18. When they are told, you're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace that says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Okay, let's stop there. When backed into a corner, they say, we do not need to defend ourselves against you. And I, I've said this to you before, I've said it again, it's important for me to keep it in front of you. I, I, when your name is slandered, when my name has been slandered and drugged through the mud and people are saying and this, that, and the other, here's what you do, you do not defend yourself. And here's why. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I like how they keep the honorific in there. They're being nice. But look at this, verse 18. But even if he doesn't, Even if he doesn't save us, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. They refuse to bow and worship, so they're thrown into the furnace. It's unclear if Daniel's a part of this. I'm going to assume that he is. I'm going to assume that there's, we were talking about this after. I'm going to assume that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into the fiery furnace because they won't bow and worship. And so as the king and some of his attendants are looking at them and watching them burn up, because, I mean, wouldn't you if you threw four people in? You might as well watch it. And uh, now you're worried I'm a serial killer. Um, (laughs) um, they're, They're looking into the furnace and they're seeing like Daniel and his friends walk around. And then somebody goes like, one, two, three, four, five. How many? Do, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five. There's another person in there with them. That's curious. And it looks like Daniel and his friends aren't being turned into crispy meat sticks. And so the king goes over in verse 26. It says, Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I think, Daniel, uh, servants of the Most High God, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego stepped out of the fire. I love this. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Bible nerds in the room, I keep wondering if this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says some will come out smelling of smoke. I wonder if the Daniel furnace is in his mind, but anyway, um, that's just for us Bible nerds. Um, they didn't even smell of smoke. Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. He sent his angels to rescue the servants who trusted him. They defied the high king's command and were willing to die rather than serve and worship any other god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race, nation, or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb. This is just the love of Jesus right here. And their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. Okay. Jesus comes to show us a more excellent way, all right? Um... But then he says, there is no God who can rescue like this. 
There is no God who can rescue like this. Daniel and his friends walk the way of sacrifice, and they do so without fear because they know who God is. They know that there's a God who can rescue. Daniel and his friends, they walk the way of sacrifice. The Lord intervenes. The king declares, what other God can save like this? Daniel and his friends walk the way of sacrifice. And do you see spiritual revolution, spiritual revolution comes to Babylon. Spiritual revolution comes to Babylon. The king himself says, there's no other God like this. He says, if you speak against this God, This is a powerful moment. I mean, in every Sunday school curriculum, this story's in here. It's probably one of the most memorable parts of the Bible. But there's this thing that happens when I read the Bible, and and maybe it's just me, but there's this thing that happens when I read the Bible where I unconsciously place myself in the shoes of someone in the story. Uh, there's actually a spiritual practice attached to this called Lectio Divina, and it's pretty powerful, but, but, but we do this, I think. I think as we read the story, as we read the story of Scripture, we consciously, unconsciously cast ourselves into one of the roles on the page. And wouldn't you like to be cast as Daniel? Daniel has faced the choice worship this false idol or die. And Daniel says, give me Yahweh or give me death, right? He, he won't do it. Oh, I want to be that. I want to be the guy that brings spiritual revolution to a whole nation because I stood up for my faith. But, 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 but what if I'm casting myself in the wrong role? What if I'm not Daniel What if I'm one of the throng of thousands that bowed before the idol, terrified for my career, terrified for my safety, my family's safety, my my security, my well-being? I talked myself into, well, God's a forgiving God. He surely won't mind if. See, it changes the meaning of the story entirely because if, if if it's me cast as the role as Daniel, if the point of the story is be like Daniel, Stand up for your faith. Be strong. That's one thing, but it's an entire other thing if the point of the story is you and I are the people bowing before the bunny statue. It's an entire story otherwise of not will you stand against worshiping idols, but what idol are you worshiping at already? But in the face of Daniel, in the face of Daniel, we see another. In his shadow, someone is standing. In the face of Daniel, we see Jesus, who flings himself into the fiery furnace of sin and death. In the face of Daniel, we see Jesus, who walks the way of sacrifice. And as Daniel and his friends walk to the furnace, we see Jesus, a cross on his back, walking to a place called the Hill of the Skull, where he will be hung on a cross and crucified and buried 
In the face of Daniel, we see this Jesus who dies to rescue you and I, the masses worshiping at this other God. We see Jesus come to save us from our idolatry, from our false worship, from our pride, and and from our fear and our obsessive need for comfort and security. Daniel is saved from the fiery furnace. His friends are saved from the fiery furnace. What does King Nebuchadnezzar say? No other God can save like this. Do you know what the early church says when they see that Jesus walk out of the tomb on Easter Sunday? They say, no other God can save like this. What other God can bring a man through death? No other God can save like this. Jesus walks the way of sacrifice, the scriptures say, for the joy that was set before him. And spiritual revolution overtakes the whole world and it's been going for 2,000 years. You know what they say in the book of Acts about these Jesus people? They say they're turning the world upside down. And it's this Jesus who walks the way of sacrifice who says, he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth, is anything worth more than your soul? I mean, we clearly think so. We, we hand our soul away in all sorts of ways, in, in relationships and busy and, and busyness and fear and, and, and a million different things. But Jesus says, to follow me is to walk the way of exile. To follow me is to walk the way of sacrifice. Jesus says, come and walk the way of sacrifice with me. Do you notice what Jesus says is essential to following him? Not how much of the Bible you know. Not how well you care for other Christians. Not how many people you've told about Jesus. Not how clearly you hear from the Lord. Not how many new things you've started for him. He says the core of following Jesus is self-denial. I have this memorized another version. If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself. To be a follower of Jesus is to carry a cross, again in my memory, daily. And you better believe as Luke is writing these words down, words that Jesus said before he was crucified, as Luke is writing these words down, in his mind's eye is this Jesus, his body beaten and bloody, a crown of thorns on his head, dragging a heavy cross up a hill. To be a follower of Jesus is to be faced every day. To be a human is to be faced every day with one choice. Save your life or lose it. That's all there is. That's the only choice. Save your life or lose it. But look at how Jesus says we find our life. We do not save our life by holding on to it, by making ourselves more comfortable, by making ourselves more safe, by getting more stuff, by living at a hurry. No, we find our life by giving it away. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? What's the whole world to you? What would it be? A happy marriage, a successful career, lots of money, a boat, a big house, three big houses, Instagram influence. And some of you would be like, it'd be awesome if I could just like not be depressed every day. 
I mean, really, some of us have set the bar very low. But what if in the process of gaining that we lose our soul? Jesus is setting today before us, he's setting before us today spiritual revolution and awakening. He's setting before us awakening, and I know you want that, and I know I want that. I want to see a great awakening in our nation, in our time. I want our church to be vibrant and alive and explosive with growth. I I want my home to be a place of spiritual revolution and awakening. I want Jack to know that. I I want that for me. I want more. But the path to spiritual revolution and awakening, it's paved with sacrifice. The way of exile is the way of sacrifice which gets you to revolution. That's it. And last week we talked about, right, we talked about obedience, the way of obedience, how the way of obedience leads to favor. What we want is favor without obedience, right? This week I want to add to that and say what we want is revolution without sacrifice. We want our our nation revolutionized with the gospel. We want our homes and our families and our church and our lives, but we want it without sacrifice. We want spiritual revolution in our nation. I hear a lot of talk about taking our country back for God, and I, I don't really know who took it. I don't know where it's gone. I understand the sentiment. But generally in those conversations, I hear us, the way that we're going to take our country back for God is to get the people that we agree with in office and they'll do it for us. That's not the way of sacrifice. That's placing the burden of sacrifice on the people we disagree with. That's not how it works. Sacrifice comes when we, revolution comes when we sacrifice, not when they sacrifice. Revolution comes when I sacrifice. We're placing the burden of sacrifice on the wrong people. We say revival will come when they sacrifice. Mm Mm-mm. Revival will come when we sacrifice. Jesus says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole nation but lose your soul? Jesus says, come walk the way of sacrifice with me. We want spiritual revolution in our church. I work with a lot of churches um, in our denomination. I have a lot of friends in ministry. I don't know of a church that would say, I don't really want spiritual revolution. I don't really want to be growing. I don't want to be worshiping the Lord. I, I, you know, no, they, we want, every church I work with wants that. They want worship. They want their church to grow. They want outreach. They want this, that, and the other. They just don't want the sacrifice that it'll take to really get there, right? Most dangerous place to be in the world is between a Christian and what they want because it, it's what makes them comfortable. It's the most dangerous place to be in the world. And even you and I, we're, we're, we're saying... We want to give everyone in our neighborhoods and networks an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. I read a book this week, and they called that gospel saturation. We want our community saturated with the gospel like a wash rag that just can't take any more water into it, yeah? Where you work and your home and your neighborhoods. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, there's a lot of neighbors of mine that I don't know. A lot of people in my network that are far from Jesus. And we can say over and over again, give our, give our every opportunity to everyone in our neighborhoods and networks, but if we keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results, there's a word for that. It's called failure, is actually what it's called. 
Jesus says, what does it benefit you if you have a church you like, but you've lost your soul? He says, come walk with me on the way to sacrifice. We sent a, a preschool application in for Jack this week. He's been three for like 10 days. Go online, how much is this going to cost me? Answer, too much. Deadline to apply is February 1st. And already I'm aware of the pressures and the competition for my time and my input in my child's life. Because starting next fall, two and a half hours a day for three days a week, he's not mine anymore. And it just goes up from there. Extracurriculars and boosters and clubs and, and I did all of it. But I've also been in ministry long enough to watch families prioritize that which does not disciple their kids over that which does disciple their kids and then be shocked that their kids have been discipled to something else other than Jesus. What does it benefit you if your child has the best scholarship but loses their soul? I want spiritual revolution in my house, but it's not going to come while I'm running five different directions. My single friends in the room, can I just tell you for a moment, what does it benefit you if you gain a spouse but lose your soul? There's a sacredness to the waiting. Our first date, our third date was Steph's 30th birthday. I am her first boyfriend. There is sacredness to the waiting. I want more. Jesus says you'll see the sick healed. Not seen a lot of the sick healed yet. Jesus says you'll preach the gospel and you'll reap a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. I've seen a couple people come to faith, but if I don't really start to see the stuff, I'm gonna be really unpleasant to hang out with forever. I'm just saying, there will be this corner of heaven with crotchety people. <laughs> I want more. I want to see the things that Jesus said, I'll see you, but it's not going to come at the level of sacrifice that I'm living right now. But Kyle, you're a pastor. You get more time. Hmm. Just because I work for the church doesn't mean I'm sacrificing for the kingdom. See what I'm saying? We were in L.A. Um, for leaders gathering. This is just how God is calling me to do this and potentially Holden uh, because I was in L.A. and we were talking about um, seeing lost people come to faith and uh, I was thinking about how I, I love you. Hear me, I love you deeply. But you wall me in on all sides with Christian. I, it's like I have to climb over these walls to find my way to like a non-Christian every once in a while and they like, you know, I'm just scared as they are. And, um, <laughs> and so the, we were talking about this, and the Lord kind of gave me a vision. I saw myself, and Holden was with me. We were prayer walking at the mall. And not like just walking by the walkers praying for them, but like actively asking the Lord for an opportunity to share the gospel with like some poor innocent woman shopping at Macy's, I guess. 
um, I, I could vomit. Hear me. Like, kill me now. You know what I mean? Like, just take me, Jesus. Thank you that Holden was in the vision. Steph was like, I'll go with you. I was like, well, I think Holden was in the vision, so pray for him. I, so starting in February, I'm going to be prayer walking at the mall. Um, but I want more, and I'm not going to get more if I just kind of keep doing the same things in and out. Where we, there's Jesus saying, what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Jesus says, come walk the way of sacrifice with me. He is no fool that gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen. Here at Regen, we do this response time so that we can have this opportunity to hear from the Father. And, and I don't know if God's asking you to walk them all. Probably not, but maybe. I don't know that God's asking you to give up everything and go give your life on another continent. Could be, but most likely not. But I do know that he's asking something of you this morning. And so the question I want you to really ask the Father is, what sacrifice is, are you asking me to make? And maybe that's just like building a relationship with a neighbor who scares you. Maybe that's praying for someone who says they're sick in the moment and saying, can I pray for you right now for healing? Um, maybe it's dealing with some other area of your life that hasn't even been mentioned this morning, but as soon as you start thinking about it, your heart beats faster, and you're like, not that, God. Please don't make me do that. Okay, so we're going to just take a moment of silence. We're going to ask the Father to come and speak to us, and um, I feel confident that he has something to say if we're willing to listen. Father, we um, come before you today as people who feel frail and vulnerable, maybe even tired and weak today. And thinking about sacrifice just feels like more than we can handle. And yet we know that in the moments where we can't handle it, you can. So I pray um, over each of us, over these dear brothers and sisters, that as they seek to sacrifice for you, for the joy set before them, that they would find you meeting them there step for step. Strength and weakness, courage and fear, freedom and where there's been bondage. We ask these things trusting in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>